Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between Earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. All right, what's up, Bulldogs? So today is going to be interesting. I have Perry Marshall here. You you might be wondering, why are we talking about biology? Isn't Perry Marshall the 80-20 sales and marketing guy? Which, by the way, great book, guys. You should definitely get that book and a lot of Perry's stuff. But yeah, so Perry actually wrote a book called uh, Evolution 2.0, right? Yes. And, uh, and it was really good. It was really good. It challenges a lot of the kind of modern science assumptions, you know. And as you guys know, on this channel, one of the things I do like to talk about also is how you shouldn't just accept what people tell you, like what science says about things, because it's theory. It's not really truly backed by, you know, the, the kind of rigors. But so anyway, so Perry wrote a, a, a paper on biology transcends the limits of computation. And uh, he reached out to me and I thought this would be interesting content to share. So yeah, welcome back, Perry. It's great to be here talking to a bunch of programmers. And I, you know, I've, I wrote an ethernet book about 19 years ago. And so I've lived in the IT world uh, to a certain degree. And so, yeah, there's an overlap. I'm an electrical engineer, biology, code, mathematics, artificial intelligence. It's all kind of in the same wheelhouse. So we're going to have a really interesting conversation today. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. So we have kind of a, a mixed audience now. So a lot of, if you guys are wondering, because a lot of you are programmers, you know, simple programmer, this channel was simple programmer. Now it's bulldog mindset. So, but yeah, let's dig into it. Let's, let's talk about, so, so what is the paper? What is the premise of the paper? So this was published in progress in biophysics and molecular biology, which is a 70 year old peer reviewed journal. And there's a bottom line to this, and then I'll, I'll unpack it. So there are several okay. bottom lines. Number one is Siri and Alexa are not going to wake up anytime soon. In fact, they're never, ever going to wake up unless and until the fundamental definition of a computer changes. Okay. So like all of this transhumanism and singularity and all that kind of stuff not going to happen unless, like we can get to the unless later, okay? But current situations, never, okay? Number two, living things are not computers. They are something fundamentally different. And that has all kinds of implications for psychology and biology and genetics, we can get into that. And finally, what it proves is that science cannot be reduced to mathematics. There are things in science that have, well, there are things in the real world that cannot be reduced to formula. Okay, and so like this changes the definition of science itself. So number one, the computers aren't going to wake up. Number two, biology is not a computer. Number three, science has to expand its definitions to account for things that are not computable. So 
it gets into lots of philosophical things, but even really deep questions of what does it mean to be alive? All of right. these questions are on the table. Okay, interesting. I, th- I think probably of those three, the one that probably sticks out the most to me is the idea that the living things are that humans are not, biology is not computers. Because I think so much that analogy has been sort of just put out there everywhere. It's like, okay, well, this is like your DNA is some code and your cell is a computer that processes that code. And all of the things that we look at as biology, we always equate it to your brain is a computer, right? It's like right. you know, all of these things, right? That's right. And it's not true. Now, why is this important? Well, because when you assume that something is just a computer, it really dehumanizes humans <laughs> and it, it dehumanizes everything. It, it, you're goldfish, too, uh, in a way. Okay, so if you go back through the history of science, people always made the un- like connected the universe to whatever the latest technology was. Okay, so if I go back five or six hundred years when the hottest thing was cuckoo clocks, okay, then everybody thought that the universe was a cuckoo clock. Like, I see, yeah. You, you go read old books, and there, and 400 years ago, 300 Newton, Isaac Newton comes along. Oh, you know, we're making clocks, the universe is a clock, it's all gears, it's uh, all, yeah, okay. Right. right. And, and so, oh, you know, look at the solar system. Look at that stuff spinning around. See, it's all clocks. Right. And then uh, okay. and then you get to now and we're like, oh, yeah, you know, G- DNA is code, which is a thesis of my book, by the way. Yes, DNA is code. Oh, therefore, cells are computers. Well, if you get into physiology, though, what you find out is DNA is not like the ultimate blueprint for everything and everything doesn't just come from DNA in some linear one-way direction. Actually, the DNA is an organ of the cell, kind of like the hard drive is a component of the computer and DNA is a read-write mechanism just like a hard drive is and cells They pull information off the hard drive and they do stuff with it, but they also put information on the hard drive. And the cell is in charge of this. And one of the points I'm making with the paper is the cell being in charge of this is something that is completely outside of anything that a computer ever does. Interesting. Okay. Um, So there is a paper that came out last year by James Shapiro. James is a bacterial geneticist at the University of Chicago. He's been studying bacteria for 50 years. He's the guy who figured out that bacteria can rewrite their own DNA. So he's, he's a very notable person. The name of his paper he published last year was called All Living Cells Are Cognitive. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. So like bacteria... You know, protozoans, tadpoles, humans, all cells are cognitive, which means they have cognition, which roughly speaking, what he's saying is that they they behave as though they have some form of consciousness. Now, I'm trying to put this in lay language, okay? And so I'm kind of coloring with a broad brush, but... 
the ability to make decisions in one's own personal interest, which people call agency, is something that's possessed by all cells. So if we go on YouTube and we type in white blood cells chasing germs around and we watch them chasing each other, it doesn't look any different than your dog chasing rabbits in the backyard. And wow. it's okay. different than six-year-olds chasing soccer balls. Huh. That's interesting. That's an interesting way to look at it. Okay. Okay. And so cells have agency and you go, so, okay, so you mean my, my skin cell like could make this independent decisions? Yeah. And when it goes crazy making independent decisions, that's called cancer. Right. Okay. So, Yes. So cells have being and they have agency and computers don't. Now, what I did in the paper was I proved this Mm, mathematically. Okay. It's not just an assertion. It's a proof. It's almost like saying like your cells, like they're trying to do something. Yes. It's like, as opposed to, I think where we view it as it's okay. Well, it's just a chain reaction of effects, right? Which is, is so crazy when you think about it. Cause I was thinking about this just the other day and I was like, how does, well, like even just the, the difference between men and women, like the male versus like one XY versus an XX chromosome, like that, that bit controls so much, but everything else is the same, but then there's these slight differences and it's like, it just boggles my mind. This doesn't seem like it's possible that that slight difference could affect so many things, but then so many cascading things. Cause as you get into endocrinology, right. And you look at hormones and it's like, this hormone affects this thing, which affects this thing, which it's such a, a giant mess of things that the, you know, that, that what you're saying about having agency makes a lot more sense. Cause if everything is, if you have all these actors that are all acting towards their own means, then it creates just like what we have now a community. Like how do we have networks of people and how do we have organizations and buildings? It's because every single person in that organization or company has agency and sometimes they work together. Sometimes they don't, but that creates that bigger function or that bigger entity. So what you're saying just immediately makes a lot more sense than, than the way that we've been viewing this model. Well, you had a great phrase. You said it's just a chain reaction. Mm. I have a friend who's a medical doctor and he read my book Evolution 2.0 and he goes, well, you know, your book got me thinking about a bunch of stuff. And he goes, you know what I realized when I was reading your book is I always thought of cells as wind up toys. And he goes, well, wait a minute. If all my cells are wind up toy, then then I'm a wind up toy. Right. (laughs) Am I really a wind up toy? No. There are people, there are very serious scientists who will tell you, oh, yeah, we're wind-up toys. Right. Sam Harris basically tell you that. Jerry Coyne basically tell you that. Oh, yeah, like this notion that you're actually making your own decisions, that's just an illusion. That's just the PR department of your, you know, the, there's some other circuit that's making those decisions, and you're not really in charge. Well, Well, first of all, this is like the most disempowering thing ever. Right. right. Like, oh, really? Uh, like I get convicted for murder and I go to the judge and I go, well, I didn't do it. My genes did. So you should right. put me in jail. Right. Like that right. goes downhill really fast. Exactly. But I prove this is wrong in the paper because what I went back to the definition of a computer, which goes back to 1936, Alan Turing. It's called a Turing machine. And right. everybody, okay, you want to see a Turing machine? This is a Turing machine. Okay. 
It's got inputs and outputs and it processes programs. It, it, anything that does that is a Turing machine. And uh, Turing was the guy who cracked the German code for Great Britain in World War II, really brilliant guy. And he defined what a computer is mathematically before they ever built one. And here's the thing about Turing machines is they only do deductive reasoning. Right. And deductive reasoning is when I say, well, you know, my grandpa, deductive reasoning, I say, everybody is mortal. Therefore, grandpa dies. Therefore, I die. Therefore, we all die. And I start from a general and I go to the specific. That's deductive reasoning. Inductive reasoning is when I go the other way. I go, well, let's see. Grandpa died and grandma died and Albert Einstein died and Abraham Lincoln died. Therefore, everybody's going to die. That's inductive reasoning. And the thing about inductive reasoning is you can never prove it. Like, I can't prove the sun's going to come up tomorrow, right? Computers do not do inductive reasoning, period. You can make it look like they do, but actually you just have to make the rules where the computer will obey the rule and come to the conclusion. But that's all that they do. And biology does something very different than that. And so assigning meaning to symbols or imagining like anybody with a UFO theory of any kind, whether they buy into it or not, is using inductive reasoning because you don't really know. Right. So, oh, well, you know, I think they're from the Andromeda galaxy. You are using inductive reasoning to form a theory and computers cannot do that. So the fact that we're able to form theories and disagree about aliens or anything else like that is proof that we're not wind up toys. Oh, that's interesting. That's, and it's interesting also, just like what you said about the people that do believe that, cause they don't truly believe it. Right. Cause like they you never, said, in the court of law, cause they don't they act in that way. They right? never act like they believe it. Right. Because if you truly believe that, then you would get away with whatever you possibly could in life. Like, cause there's no moral consequences. There's no ethical consequences. And it's also not your fault. So there's no sense of guilt or shame because you're just doing what you're programmed to do. And you had no other choice. You couldn't have done anything different. So whatever you've done is absolutely correct. But people aren't living that way. No one is living that way uh, that I know of. I mean, that's uh, kind of proof of it. But I, I like that. That I never thought of it that way. It's like inductive reasoning is computer could never do that. But yet we do that. And so that's the proof of our autonomy. Hmm. Now, I'm going to anticipate that some like artificial intelligence, machine learning guys are going, oh, yes, they can. Because, you know, good, deep mind and it can learn to play chess and everything. Okay. But let's notice what's happening. You know, if you program a computer to learn Go or to learn chess, what you're doing is you're making a situation with a huge amount of memory, like way more memory than any human has. And then you're you're programming it to like backtrack into figuring out what the rules are through a completely deductive process. But what's remarkable about ants and bees and humans and goldfish is they navigate the world with way, way less memory than that with way less examples. And like most of the machine learning and AI stuff you hear is hype. It is designed to attract investors. It's designed to spike the stock market. Every time Elon Musk says, Oh yeah, the machines are going to take over. It makes investors put more money into into Tesla, which makes self-driving cars, which are ridiculously hard to pull off, 
Right. And so there's a lot of like there's a lot of fiction around this stuff. So that's interesting, too. Like, I mean, what you said with self-driving cars, because if you truly can't have inductive reasoning programmed, at least to the degree that we know it so far, then self-driving cars, I mean, they can only make it so far, right? Because it can never make the kind of decisions that a, that a human could make. Yes. It can only have like a database of probable of things and how to respond, but like a hard-coded answer of when these conditions meet, you know, and, and even neural networks, it's just creating that database without knowing what the rules are, but you're still creating rules that say when, you know, when you have this many drops in this bucket, dump the bucket or don't dump the bucket or choose this other bucket. Yes. And there's no escaping that. Okay. So I think where, what will happen with self-driving cars is we'll get to the point where they have a program for 99.99% of situations and then the rest that they didn't account for, the insurance companies will pay for it. Like, I think, yeah. I think it's really going to come down to the insurance companies like, oh, you know, somebody got killed by a self-driving semi-truck. Well, we just pay them like $8 million and the problem goes away and you just pay the insurance. Like, this is probably how it's actually going to work. Yeah. And that makes sense. And it, it makes sense because statistically it would still be a, a lower death rate or, <laughs> but there is a huge difference between your death being caused by own incompetence or ignorance or, or, or someone else's true, you know, incompetence or whatever versus a random, <laughs> like a glitch. There's something to be said about that. <laughs> right. Right. But okay, so so looking at this then with your paper, like breaking down the things about so about biology transcending the limits of computation. I guess two questions. I guess one: How does it do it? What is the mechanism that, or or what do you think it is? And then yeah, maybe we can just start there. So in 1943, Erwin Schrödinger, you know Schrödinger's cat, like that guy. By the right. way, his cat's name was Milton. Um, <laughs> I, I know a guy who lives across the street in Oxford from where Schrodinger used to live. So the Schrodinger's cat guy, Erwin Schrodinger, wrote a book called What is Life in 1943. So this is before the genetic code was understood. Lots of stuff in genetics was not understood. It's this brilliant book. And he said, living things do something that dead things don't, which is living things turn chaos into order. Right. Non-living things, it's always order goes to chaos. And he goes, so what do we call this? He, he called it negative entropy. Interesting, okay. Okay, like entropy is gas turns into exhaust and exhaust never turns back into gas, right? Toast always gets cold when you pop it out of the toaster. It doesn't get hotter, right? That's entropy. And Schrodinger said, Living things have negative entropy, which has now been mathematically defined. They do it. Most scientists agree they do it. Nobody knows how. Mm, okay, right. Like, full stop. Nobody knows how. Well, so we have, in my opinion, we have six huge unanswered questions in science. Where did life come from? Where did the genetic code come from? Where does the ability to make evolutionary decisions come from? 
how do you get real AI instead of fake AI? What is consciousness and what drives cancer? Right. Okay. I say these are one question, not six. And the one question is, what is consciousness and how does it work? I think consciousness is the answer to all six of those questions. Where did life come from? Where did genetic code come from? How do evolutionary decisions get made? How do we get real AI? What is consciousness? Well, what is consciousness is right, the question. And then cancer, which I talked about at the beginning. Like if you get skin cancer, well, you had some rose skin cells that decided to not cooperate with the plan anymore. Right. Okay. So then if you, it makes sense to base it back to that one question, what is consciousness? Because coming back to the idea of the sovereignty or, you know, being actors, right. At, at every level, then really, you know, that, what is this force that is driving those desires, right? You know, every actor has a desire. What is the desire, you know, what drives that? And that would be consciousness. And so what is the nature of that? That makes sense because then that would be, because even in the cancer cell example, because I think that was the the one that most people would probably be thrown off, be like, well, why does that question of all the other ones? But because if that cell has uh, its own sovereignty and is a free agent, then why is it choosing to do something that is destructive? Cancer is probably the most readily understandable example of this because, I mean, I've got a bunch of friends who died of cancer and my dad died of cancer when I was 17. And so I said, let's take my dad. He, he had cancer in his the kidney and then he got it, the kidney taken out. So when you go from a normal happy kidney to kidney with cancer, what has happened is some cells in your body got stressed out and they they went into, let's call it like Windows safe mode. Mm, yeah. Okay. Like, you know, the computer got stressed out and it goes into the safer mode of operation. And then the body is unable to get it back out and the immune system kicks in and starts attacking it. And then this lizard brain cell goes, hey, who are these people coming after me with knives and spears? I'm going to get out my evolutionary toolkit and I'm going to start engineering solutions to this. And now you're in the middle of the Viet Cong. Right. Then we get chemotherapy and like all this and radiation, whatever. We start nuking them. Well, now you're dumping napalm on the Vietnamese village and you're killing a bunch of people. And then you're pissing off the ones that survive. And then the ones that survive, what do they do? They're like, well, this is guerrilla warfare, man. Like, let's start innovating. And the evolutionary toolkit comes out. So, like, evolution is not random. It's not accidental. There's a whole bunch of mechanisms that cells have. This is what Evolution 2.0, my book, is about. And so cancer is like a perfect case study in agency. Because when they were normal kidney cells, they were doing exactly what they were told to do. Right. A marvelous level of a cooperation. It's it's mind-boggling, right? And right. then all of a sudden, you got these ugly tumors growing, and they're you're watching rogue evolution in real time. There's two things that that come to my mind about this. I guess at the very lowest level, like at the quantum level, and then at the very highest level, maybe it's a simulation or simulations <laughs> within simulations, right? Okay. Because because both things could kind of explain 
perhaps consciousness in, the, in that aspect, right? At the quantum level, you have this kind of behavior where there is almost like a consciousness but because your observation affects the the actual result, so that the reality, but also it lends itself all the way back up the chain is like, if you're saying that computers can't have inductive reasoning, there's some other force. Well, if I just take this world and then I make another world outside of it, then I can now explain all of those things because now what at this level is inductive reasoning at the higher level, it's just deductive reasoning because there's a program that's controlling at the higher level what these programs are doing or what this happening in this world, right? So that agency, you have free agency within this simulation, but in the other world, it's not free agency. There's maybe a, a higher level of free agency that someone else possesses that is controlling you or your cells. So this is kind of like a Russian doll's problem. Like you can add another layer and another layer. You can make the system bigger and bigger and bigger. Right. Um, until you, you get to the answer. There's a real problem with if you just going, oh, well, it really is wind-up toys, but the wind-up mechanism, oh, it's, it's just high. bigger. And then it's bigger. Right. That's really what you're doing, and you can never prove it. So what you end up right. doing is, is you end up saying, well, I just think the wind-up toy is so big, and you're making a hypothesis – and by the way, you're using inductive reasoning to make that hypothesis. Right. But you're saying the giant causal chain just forced me to come to that conclusion. So what I think is interesting is that that's just an atheist version of Christian Calvinism. I see. Interesting. <laughs> okay. Like, you know, I mean, there were theologians that were saying this, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And it's the exact same argument. It's just an irreligious argument instead, but it's not fundamentally any different, but it's still just as disempowering. Right. Right. right? Like we still lose the basis of all civilization. Right. 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 Exactly. Yeah. It's just a higher level up, but I mean, ultimately, I mean, everything comes back to that, right? You can always trace it back. There's it's, it's sort of this, you know, what is it called? It's like a strange loop. Like everything is eventually a strange loop because if you keep on going up and up, then you have to get to the, the real question of again, which is what is consciousness? What is the basis of this? An interesting, you know, theory I, I heard about it, this really good book series. It's a little bit wacky, but if you haven't read it, it's called My Big Toe, My Big Theory of Everything. You've heard of it? Yeah, I have. Oh, okay, okay. You should, oh, you should read it. You, you, I think you'd find it really interesting. It's long read, but it's, it, it goes into a lot of interesting stuff. But in his conceptualization of the entire universe, it is uh, you know, multiple simulations within simulations, right? A different physical reality and non-physical realities and so on and so on, to, probably to infinite. But all of this is God's consciousness, which is a, a consciousness computer, almost like you could say like a mind or spiritual computer that is creating, it, it's, it's just all just a thought that has like this consciousness being divided up into little things. And then it kind of makes sense almost with what you're saying is that like, even at the very cell level, it's still just a piece of the consciousness of, of God. And so the question that he, I suppose the answer he would give to your question of what is consciousness is he would say that it's all one thing. It's all one source. It's all God. It all comes from one giant consciousness that is, that is divided itself into little pieces. And so that's, what's driving everything. Well, I'm a Christian and I don't disagree. I think that's probably about right. And personally, I think that consciousness and agency 
is a gift from God to living things. And I don't know the mechanisms of how that happened. Uh, it's not an accident that you brought up quantum mechanics and the fact that the observer is inextricably linked to the outcome of the experiment, which, you know, people have argued for decades about what exactly that means, but there's no question that it's a fact. Right, exactly. The, the observer does affect the, the experiment at the quantum level. And so actually, I think just that, it tells us that the universe is consciousness first, matter second, not the other way around. And I yeah. think one of the implications of my paper is that the reductionist view of the world, which is that it's just chain reactions, right. is wrong. It's right. flat out wrong. It doesn't hold water to everything that can't be explained. I got a question here from Sushon Spirit Beast. He says, if the cells in our body have sovereignty and we have sovereignty, does that mean we could be cells of the planet? That's yes. Yes. This, yeah. is a, this is a fractal thing. Okay. So if right. you want to go down an interesting rabbit hole, go look up the Gaia hypothesis, G-A-I-A. Mm. The, the Gaia hypothesis uh, came out in the 1960s. And by a really brilliant guy named James Lovelock, who said, he goes, based on everything I can see, the earth, for all practical purposes, functions like an organism. Like, you regulate your temperature, the earth regulates its temperature. You relate how, regulate the oxygen in your body, the earth regulates oxygen. Yeah. And people hated this guy. They I'm sure. hated it, Okay. But then, you know, years go by and prediction after prediction after prediction after prediction ended up being right. And now it's kind of hard to argue with. Okay. And so, like, the earth is an organism and I'm an organism. And so my cells have mitochondria in them, which are really bacteria, which right. reproduce on their own. It's like beings all the way down yeah 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 that's and it's interesting because when you look at that parallel i mean some things make a little more sense uh because people are always like i think one of the biggest things that people have against religion is they say well or, or against the idea of god is they say well if there were a god he wouldn't let such horrible things happen you know what about children that die and like all these you know all these things and it's like I mean, at that level, like if you really think about it that way, if like if the earth is an organism, it's unfortunate when people die, but it's also like your red blood cells die or, you know, and, it, right. and it's like sperm comes outside of your body and it lives its own life outside and then it dies, you know, it's like, or it doesn't die and then there's new life. And so at that level, those things make sense because it's not, you know, we apply so much value to our own lives and to this experience, but we don't look at the, because we're just, you know, myopic and looking at this level of life, right? Like you said, if it goes all the way down, what about the funeral for the mitochondria that died? <laughs> you know what I mean? Or at the higher level, you know, we have the whole planet or, you know, the death of species and, yes. you know, and organisms in the planet, like collective groups of species. So John, John that's exactly right. And see, I think this is actually essential to understanding. Well, why is there suffering? Why is there evil? It's because agency has been granted. Like, it's not an illusion. 
that you and I both decided to be on this podcast today. Like we're here because we wanted to. We're not here because our genes programmed us to show up. Okay. We decided, right? We all have some window. Like I'm not saying we have infinite levels of choice or anything, but I'm saying within a certain band, you know, I can pick A or B. I can click the button and leave this thing right now if I wanted to. Right. Right. And so you have to wrap your arms around it. Like the love and responsibility and evolution are only possible in a world that has choices. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Otherwise it's, it's, it's silly. Cause it's silly to argue otherwise, because you're, unless you're going to behave in that fashion, then to like judge people or to be angry or upset or of any action is ridiculousness. Cause it doesn't coincide with what your theory of life is. So. Yeah. What a great question. I mean, this is why this is not just trivial stuff. And so like every piece of digital code is just a trailing indicator of decisions that have been made by conscious beings. So now, okay. So then looking at, at this, right, because, and so far no one's ever been able to do it. Right. And I could sort of outline the rules for doing this, like for creating life. Right. So, I mean, at at this point we would know that it would need to have the ability to do inductive reasoning mm-hmm. uh, and also that it would be able to create reverse entropy. It would be able to create, you know, order from chaos. Yes. And so, you know, so that brings up the question is like, if we just took the simplest life form, right. That with the simplest genetic code or simplest brain that we could map out, can we just in the computer map out that exact brain and create that life? Like, you know, if we just use the DNA, for instance, right. Can we create life if we have DNA and we can have a, a cell computer, let's say that could read that DNA and run that program. Can we bootstrap life that way? Well, Craig Venter worked on that very famously and, you know, 10 to 20 years ago, and he was making synthetic cells, but he had to do it by borrowing Ferrari engine parts from real living things, right? Like, so his biggest accomplishment to my knowledge was that they made a completely synthetic genome of a bacteria and then they inserted into a real bacteria, took out the old one and like it actually worked, okay? And that's as close as they got. Now, we've never made a self-replicating machine. Like, see, this is really interesting. Like, you could define life as self-replicating, you know, bacteria, right? No human at any level of technology has ever made a self-replicating machine. Nobody's ever figured out how to do it. You can have a very precise definition of a machine. Guess what? There is no precise definition of life. If you put 100 biologists in a room and you go write down the definition of life on a three by five card and turn it in, every single one of them will give you a different answer. It's like almost ineffable. It's like, well, life can reproduce. Well, my my mom's mom is 90 and she can't reproduce. Is she alive? Well, sure looks like it to me. Right. And so these things get very fuzzy. Oh, yeah. Well, even I think most people don't realize that when someone dies, like, let's say in a hospital, 
the doctor just makes a judgment call as to whether they're dead or not. There's no criteria even to define death. To, to, like you can't say, well, the heart stopped beating. Or you can't say the brain stopped functioning because sometimes the heart and the brain stop and then the person comes back. So there's no, <laughs> someone right. just has to say, okay, well, it's been like five minutes since we've seen any kind of pulse. So we're going to assume that they must be dead at this point. Right. Uh, but yeah, there's no clear definition. No, no clear test that you could possibly take that would say whether this person's alive or dead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, isn't this fascinating? Like, you know, who, who knew that um, all of these things uh, are wrapped up in the question of like, well, what can a computer do? Right. So then it comes down to this idea of almost like the chicken or the egg problem, right? Is because what the picture you're painting, at least in my mind, seems to be that that you can't jumpstart the machine of life. You cannot create life. There has to be a spark that you have to have life to create life, that there's no way around this. And so like you could create life from some other life, like even like you said, that bacteria experiment, they had to inject it into a bacteria because it had to have some other component that doesn't exist that you, you have to, it can only come from something that already is alive. There's no way to create life without something being alive. And, and so far there's no you know, no one's ever proven that to be false. So, Well, right. So that's called the principle of biogenesis, that all life comes from life. Now, this gets you to conundrum because you're like, well, there had to be some place where it started. Yep. That's called the origin of life problem. And it's right. like, it's probably the hardest problem in science. And like anybody that tells you, well, you know, there was a, a lucky RNA strand and a lightning strike and it just kind of got started. Hey, man, like that is about 97% fiction, right? Like, yeah. well, I mean, if you want to believe that, go ahead and believe it. But it's not like anybody's proven that. Well, and, and the, the proof of it or against it is that if that's true and it's like some very low probability event, knowing that and having the technology then just make the event occur. You've got the resources to do it. You know, it, it's a lot easier for a, a sentient being with, uh, with almost infinite computation power to be able to do that than it is for billions of years of random chance to do it. it I mean, that's just the, you know, it's a foregone conclusion. So why can't someone do it then? Well, I'm glad you brought this up because we haven't mentioned that I have a $10 million prize for origin of the genetic code or origin of any code without cheating. And uh, we announced it at the Royal Society in 2019. And it's the largest basic science research prize in the world. It's called the Evolution 2.0 Prize. You can Google it. You can find all kinds of stuff. And I got tired of people arguing about angels dancing on the knee, you know, heads of a pen about all this stuff. And I'm like, right. look, if somebody can figure this out, it's worth a lot of money. It's like as big as Einstein, okay? I can't figure it out, but you know what I can do is I can define the problem and I can put it out there. I can have right. judges from Harvard, Oxford, MIT, which I do, and like solve the problem, collect the money. If you haven't solved the problem, don't claim that you've solved it. And right. this eventually led me to these deeper and deeper and deeper questions because right. like, well, where does code come from? Well, what can code do? What can code not do? That gets you into Alan Turing and, and all of this stuff. And so 
it really got me thinking about these big questions. And so there's some possible answers, okay? One possible answer is the laws of physics and chemistry have a capacity for generating consciousness that we don't understand. Mm, That's a perfectly plausible thing. Another possibility is that consciousness is an entity that exists in and of itself, which is able to influence matter and energy and like pick either one of those or both of those trails and start running down them. And so I think it, it, it gets you into, well, okay. So, you know, which of these um, theories of quantum mechanics actually makes sense. And there's very interesting people that are working on this stuff. And consciousness is a growing field. And so, like, somewhere, I I think there's some answers to this. And I think my job is to highlight the questions. I think there's not nearly enough people saying, you know, here's a question we don't know the answer to, and here's one, and here's one, and here's one. There's way too many people pretending they have answers that they do not have. Right. And what's wrong with an unanswered question? Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I like that approach because there's so many people claiming and it sort of gets mixed up into this whole, like it, it's this dichotomy, this false dichotomy of, okay, so either you believe what quote mainstream science says without any kind of proof of it. It's not like the rigors of the, the scientific method for most of this stuff, or you're a religious fanatic. <laughs> it's like, there's no in between. And, and, and what I like, what you're saying is you're not saying, well, the Bible says this, you're right. saying, this is just explain this then <laughs> like, like make something that makes sense. And I'll accept whatever you, you say that makes sense. But I, I think that it's, it's such a disservice to science that's that people have this false dichotomy because they don't question the things right it's like if you question science as you know wh- whatever that is then yeah. you're a lunatic and right. uh and and i mean i guess you can see where the world where it's taken us in this age <laughs> right like i mean what's just happened recently this is crazy because some people just believe science no matter what and science is such an ambiguous term because it's it's whatever the people who have the most power say that it is which has always been the case throughout the world right because back in the day of copernicus and uh galileo right science was whatever the people who had power said it was so if you want exact answers I would recommend that you be a bookkeeper, not a scientist. (laughs) If you go far enough into any scientific field, you will find yourself surrounded with mysteries. And I don't care what branch of science you're, you'd be in chemistry, biology, physics, astronomy. I mean, we have way less of this figured out than most people think. Yeah. I think science is just getting started. Like we're 300 years after Newton. I think basically we're at kindergarten ABCs of how the universe really works. I think the vast majority of it is still not figured out. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. It makes sense. Which, okay. I'm going to give you a little bit of a curveball here just because i'm curious about your thoughts on this and people are going to get upset in the comments i uh, okay i I, on the video but i have to ask what you think about the flat earth 
theory. Because it's interesting because like my take on it is, you know, I always talk about like probabilities of belief. Like I don't have any firm beliefs. I have probabilities. So I have a 95% probability of belief that the earth is round, but 5% that it's flat. So everything that I believe in life is there's some probability I associate to it. I never give 100% certainty to a thing. And that's also so that I'm never so uh, religious about my ideas. They're not personal to me because it's just a percentage. So the flat earth thing, some of the stuff that they say, it's like, like, I mean, a lot of it seems crazy, but then some of it, it's like, well, shit, there's no answer to this question. So I find it interesting to look at the questions that they ask and just that. But what's your take on on that? Have you looked into that at all? Well, I haven't really looked in the flat earth and I would go, well, my math would be 99.99% round earth or maybe I only get 99.9, like, because, uh, I don't know, I've, I've never been more than 10 miles above the earth. Okay. But so let me give you a slightly different example that okay. maybe, so let's take UFOs. Okay. okay. I rem- so the standard answer is there ain't no UFOs and it's all, okay. Well, I was, I don't know, 10 years ago, I, a bunch of government information got released And I remember watching this video and this guy says, look, I worked in this government office and there was this room and they had all this stuff that they had gotten. And I'm going through the stuff and he's like, man, this is real. And I watched the whole video and I said to myself, that sounded persuasive. I don't really know. I've gotten to the bottom of other things before. I'm really not sure about this. And my curiosity wheel is spinning really fast here. And I thought, Perry, is this really the thing that you want to go obsess and figure out? (laughs) Right. Exactly. No. (laughs) (laughs) Not worth it. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. And and look, there are a lot of things that people make you think that we were sure about and then we're not like, okay, here's a really good example would be dark matter in the universe. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. While the universe is 90% dark matter, it has these certain characteristics. I would not be surprised if that gets completely overturned in the next 25 years and something totally replaces in those dark matter. Oh, those stupid, ridiculous dark matter people. Well, it was a reasonable theory at the time. Exactly. And so you have to have some humility. Like, dude, I've not gone down the UFO thing. I don't know. And why do I have to? And why do I have to have an opinion about this? Exactly. No, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, too, but I think the dark matter thing is a ridiculous already because it's not even a very plausible theory. Because when you really look into it, all it is is a way to fill in an equation that doesn't work. So instead of saying the equation doesn't work, there must be something wrong. They say our equation must be right and there must be invisible matter that can't be detected in any way. I mean, that and then there has to be dark energy to balance out that part of it because of so it to me it, it just seems like you know someone's making up stuff to uh, to fit their model instead. But there's also another example of this which is interesting too. I don't know if you've heard about this, but you know plate te- uh, plate tectonics, right? Tectonic plate theory. Actually, what's what's interesting about that too is the guy that came up with plate tectonics. He was uh, ostracized and considered a lunatic, and they basically marched him out of the university. And it was you know, and then and then now everyone believes it's true, yeah. but. There's another theory, which is interesting, which is hard to refute as well, is there's this theory that says that plates don't actually move. The Earth is getting bigger. 
therefore, like you look at Pangea, right? And the mathematics work out for it, strangely, that mm. it's possible that the Earth is actually just growing in size. And that is causing the continents to pull apart, but the plates aren't actually moving. I mean, there's other, you know, evidences of volcanoes and, you know, obviously the plate, you know, the stuff that lends itself to it. But it's interesting just to look at that is that, you know, everything you kind of have to look at it in question is like, oh, well, is there another possible explanation for this thing? But most people just accept whatever they've been told or, you know, 500 million years ago, a billion years ago, something happened. No one knows. Well, John, let's point out that what we're doing right now is exhibit A, abductive reasoning. We have a certain set of these small set of facts, and we're trying to figure out bigger, what is the generalized explanation of these facts that don't all quite add up? Like, what is the model that would resolve all of the contradictions? That is inductive reasoning. That is what biology does that computers don't do, right? And right. so just the fact that we're having this discussion is an illustration of what's very special about life itself. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's true. Yeah. I can't imagine. I mean, no matter where we are with computer artificial intelligence, it never comes to this level. There's never, right. at least, and they're saying that the singularity that someday it will be, but will it? I don't know. Cause we're not even one step along the way, right? We're not even close to it. And it's a zero or zero, all or nothing game. Right. Well, it has to be able to do inductive reasoning in order to do what we do or to house like there's all this, well, we're going to upload our brain into the cloud and all of that. It's like, well, it's going to have to be able to support this kind of a function. And a computer by definition does not. So no, Ray Kurzweil, there's not going to be a singularity unless, oh, I said, well, I would get to it, unless we come up with some fundamentally different kind of computer. Right. Now then, so, okay, so like, let's say some guy in Sweden figures out consciousness. And he's like, well, guess what? You know, if you line up these atoms in this certain way, a consciousness field pops out and then it starts making decisions. And like, oh, well, then the next thing, Toshiba is going to put that in a chip and they're going to like make a trillion dollars selling these chips to everybody, right? And then we're in a whole different world. But the computer itself will have fundamentally changed. Right, exactly. And people think quantum computers would be able to do that, but quantum computers awesome. are actually dumber than because quantum computers just seek to find the lowest energy state which is not a decision making <laughs> it's very quick and, and it considers all kinds of possibilities but it's more brute force than regular computers because it's trying a bunch of different things and then finding the thing that's the lowest energy state so at least the way that they work now but what about a biological computer like a biological machine hybrid right so suppose that you have some cell or some brain that has the power of of inductive reasoning mm -hmm. and then you surround it with uh so much technological equipment and computation power so now it can use that to create a, a singularity or you know i guess there, there's even been some movies where that's kind of been somewhat of the plot, like Minority Report, maybe they had like a psychic human that was controlling all of the stuff, but uh, but but their power was magnified to become this giant AI machine because of all the computation power equipment. Well, for years I've had this fantasy 
I call it algae on a chip. Okay. And it works like this. So I've always thought since I wrote a book on Google advertising, like how would you make a search engine actually smart? Well, what if in Google headquarters, you had a chip and you, you had this little colony of algae and they were communicating with the circuits somehow. And when a person likes the search result, the algae knows it and they're like, oh, well, let's make the people happier, right? And then you have a living thing on one end of the search query and a living thing on our end of the search query. And we're actually, and then the, the algae colony is like optimizing. I mean, I can't be the first guy that's thought of this. Like, right. I don't know how to build it. I don't have any idea, but I mean, somebody's got to be working. It's got to be possible. I mean, how could it not be? Right, right, exactly. Yeah, no, that, that may, well, I mean, that exists already in a sense, right? Because Amazon, they had this thing. I don't know if they have it anymore. It's called Amazon Turk. And there's other there's other technologies. There's this one site where it gives predictions of things and it uses, it basically uses the, the idea that like if enough humans are connected to the other end, they could predict even really weird things like estimates of things. I read a, a book about it too, or, 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 oh, I know, I read this story about, I can't remember what book it was in, but it was talking about this guy, they had this like guess the weight of this hog thing and he was at this fairground or carnival and it was all these like farmers and hicks and you know country folk and they're like none of these people know the fucking weight of a of they're not going to guess the weight of this hog there's there's no way they don't have the you know they don't have any idea of it and what ended up happening was he bet that uh, a couple of trained like uh, people that had you know i forget what it was but you know non-lay persons right experts could do a better job of guessing the weight than uh, you know a thousand random people at a fair and the thousand random people who knew nothing about the weight of a hog you know, their average guess, like the ended up being more accurate than the expert. And so it's sort of this group computation is it's like, you know, when you have enough, like the uh, enough people, enough, uh, you know, of consciousness, like it is always going to outsmart is going to be, it's going to be smarter than, than the individual. Swarm intelligence, wisdom of crowds. Yeah. Right. But if you can harness that, then that's there's some power in that. And that's what I was saying, like with Amazon Turk, is they they basically would crowdsource out. You would get paid to like do stuff, right? And then they had millions of people or hundreds of thousands of people, you know, depending on how much computation, like you're buying human computation power is essentially what it what it was. And then, you know, they, they would do some of it would be simple tasks, but some of it would be solving problems by taking the consensus of this group of very large group. So <laughs> well, I, I, I think that really, like, all of these computational problems are solved by biology, right? It's like if I hire six PhDs from Stanford and MIT and I put them in charge of my machine learning department, I'm relying on biology because the computers are just an extension of the people. So let me ask one one last question here that I think, because I'm curious about this on your, your stance on this, and I'm not sure myself, but... Okay, so based on everything that you're saying, right, let's suppose that we had a machine that could perfectly read DNA and then execute those instructions. Mm -hmm. If we have that machine that could perfectly read it and then execute those instructions, does that constitute enough to create life? No. Emphatic no. And why not? Because we already know 
that at least half the information that requires to create life is not in DNA. And I'll give you an example. The shape of your body of having four, two arms and two legs and a head and abdomen, that is not coded in DNA. Right. Right. Okay. We already know this. It's in the cell membranes or somewhere. It's not in the DNA. And so there's this myth that everything is determined by DNA and it's just not true. DNA is only part of the equation. Okay. Yeah. See, and that makes sense as to why you can't create that machine. And I mean, the Jurassic park people are going to be really sad, but you know, <laughs> but you could still create from code dinosaur DNA, a dinosaur, but you would have to have a lizard or some Thing close to it, it based yeah. on what you're saying in order to, but it wouldn't be the exact thing there. And there's no way to know what the exact thing would actually be because you would need to have that host to have those other components, like you're saying that, that don't exist within the DNA. As far as I know, that is exactly right. So yeah, boy, the, you know, this stuff gets really interesting. And the questions like we barely even know what organizes a multicellular organism when, you know, it's one thing to have one cell in a Petri dish, but like, how do you get an embryo and how does all that communication happen? We are babes in the woods on all. Yeah. And we haven't even talked about the placebo effect as well, which is proven, <laughs> right? Which again, takes just a whole nother layer to it, that there has to be more than just the simple mechanics and, uh, you know, of cause and effect. So uh, John, okay. I, I love the fearless questions the way you, like most people haven't even thought of this, let alone have the courage to ask. I just love that we're having this conversation. Yeah, well, I find this stuff fascinating because I feel like people don't really, they just take so much of the world for granted and don't ask why, like why, you know, they just take an explanation and, and it, it's unfortunate. And it, it carries over in so much of, of your life, right? It's not just, it's not just about theoretical things like this and it, you know, stuff that you might say might not matter in your life, but if it's that way of thinking that applies to business, it applies to relationships, it applies to all of the way that you live your life right? You know, getting stuck in the rat race, right? So many people, that's just their, it's the equivalent of that, of not questioning science. It's just the way you're supposed to do things. So. Yeah. Well, that, that's why we need more entrepreneur thinking in science because entrepreneurs yeah. don't just do what they're told and we question things and we need more of it. I mean, dude, we need more of it. Entrepreneurs are so important right now. Well, uh, I guess we should probably wrap this up here, but uh, I put a link down in the description, guys, for Perry's paper. If you want to go and read through it, it's a little heavy. <laughs> it's a, it's, it is a technical paper, but we covered a lot of, of what you talked about here, not the mathematic proofs, of course, but um, anything else you want people to go check out? I mean, you have your book, right? Uh, Evolution 2.0 that you can get on Amazon. What else should um, people check out? I have a series of blog posts that dissect the paper in much more friendly lay language. Oh, good. Okay. And if, if you go to evo2.org and click on the blog, there's several blog posts called Cancer Evolution and the Nature of Nature. And if you go click on that series and read through them, I think there's three of them now. I'll probably have six or seven within the next month or so. And I think that will give lay people a much more digestible version of this. Okay, perfect. I just put the link in the chat for you guys if you want to check that out. And uh, yeah, that's pretty cool. I'm really interested to see 
I was just looking at the, the $10 million prize on there too. <laughs> so if you guys want to check that out as well, it's right there. There's a thing and you can, you can see that that's, it's not BS, it's real. So oh, yeah. get oh, it's $10 million bucks. It's very real. I have the leading geneticists at Harvard Medical School on my judging panel and it's in peer-reviewed papers. It's in the Financial Times. It's been in Forbes and Inc. So yeah, it's for real. And yeah, we got $10 million. Like, look, if you can solve this consciousness thing, it's worth at least $10 million. And, and my investors know that it might be worth more than that. Like we're prepared to deal with wherever this thing goes. So do you think not, it'll ever be solved? I've told my investors, I think there's a 10% chance it'll, it will be solved in my lifetime. Interesting. What, okay. now, what I believe is that because we are asking so many questions, we are going to find a very significant something yeah like a really big deal something and i've already had very interesting people come to me with very interesting things we have prize entries that didn't win there's also prize entries that we can't talk about we're in very interesting conversations with people i've had numerous world like lee cronin is a world-class chemist in glasgow he's we did a podcast together he said i'm going to win that prize and you wow, okay. add up. So there's very, wow. very serious people uh, looking at this. That's interesting because it, it's one of those things where I think some people are going to look at it and they're like, oh, yeah, this is just some kind of religious, like, you know, it's a tautology. It's not possible. Like, it's a, you know, there's no solution for this. But that's not what it is at all. And that's, I think that's important that people realize that it's like, it, it's actual, you want to know the answer. It's not just like being used as a gimmick, but it's a valuable answer to have. So if 15 years ago, I would have used it as a gimmick and I would have used it. See, I proved God exists. You guys are all stupid. 15 years ago, I would have done that. But the way that my thinking evolved, it was like, no, like we have to take this absolutely seriously as a question. We can't basically both of the extremes are religious. The atheist right. view is a religious view. Oh, the lucky lightning strike and the RNA strand is pretty much a religious story. And then you have the other religious story. I'm like, we got to go straight down the middle. We have to respect the questions and we have to respect empirical, factual, demonstrable science. And the way that we get people to focus is by putting money in it. Absolutely. Yeah, I love it. All right. Well, thanks again for coming on, Perry. This has been uh, in, a very, very uh, interesting discussion. I love having discussions like this. So I do too, dude. Thank you. And it's just been so great knowing you and uh, look forward to seeing you down the road, man. All right. Take care. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com.